Um, I hope a handout sheet has come around the room. I think uh, it looks as though most people have done. Uh, what I want to talk about today is a problem which, although it has its focus in Europe, and more particularly in the United Kingdom, is intellectually an issue which is of resonance in any legal system of a potentially federal nature. As you'll probably all know, the United Kingdom is a member of the European Union. It's also a member of a separate international legal treaty, the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, basically, every member state of the European Union, which was designed to be largely a free trade organization, is also a member of the European Convention, which in fact is a slightly older body of international law, which focuses on classic liberal political rights. So rights to expression, private life, association, liberty, life, and so forth, are all protected under the European Convention on Human Rights, which is administered by the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. By contrast, the European Union is mainly concerned with economic rights, rights to travel in order to work, receive services, rights to engage in properly competitive activity, also rights to be free from discrimination in the workplace, the original rationale behind that right being that it was a right which helped again promote efficient economic organization. Now, the legal problem is basically this. The European Convention on Human Rights is like any other international legal treaty. In other words, the contracting states sign up to it, they agree to abide by its provisions, and crucially, under Article 13 of the Convention, they agree to guarantee people effective remedies in international law in defense of their convention rights. However, it being an international treaty, in dualist systems like the UK, the USA is another such system, national courts are only allowed to recognize and enforce European convention rights up to the extent that national law allows them to. So if you feel as a litigant that your convention rights have been breached by your national government, you can go before a national court, but only up to the extent that national law allows you. If you don't feel that national law has allowed you to argue your issue sufficiently, your next recourse is to the Court of Human Rights based in Strasbourg. Now, by contrast, the European Union is utterly unique as a legal category in terms of being an international legal system. The European Union, whose laws are administered by the European Court of Justice, based in Luxembourg, assumes that, in and of itself, its laws take priority over the laws of the member states. It also assumes that courts of the member states are required, without more, to apply EU laws, or some of them at least, in priority to national law, where the two conflict. So it's a much more overriding, binding system of law at national level. Now, there are many, many constitutional questions which I may touch on concerning the issue, how do national courts actually respond to the European Union? How do they reconcile the overriding power of the European Union with their own understanding of national legal traditions? But the point is, for present purposes, that these two different European courts, with their two quite different doctrines to do with the power of their own case law, lead to a real logical problem. First of all, how do we actually understand a composite European legal system if you have one court, as it were, at federal level, that is saying, by definition, our judgments, the norms from our level of the system, take priority over anything applicable at national level, whereas the other court is saying, okay, you are supposed to, at national level, abide by our judgments, abide by our norms, but nonetheless, since we're just an international court, they have the power at national level that national legal systems accept. If the national legal system turns, to be, turns out to be out of line with what's required in Strasbourg, then there's a damages remedy in international law, but it's not an issue for concern nationally. How do we actually understand a federal or aspiring federal structure which have those two different weights of, if you like, federal level legal norm coming down? So that would be one issue. A second issue is, how do the courts actually cope in those small number of areas where the European Court of Justice 
and the European Court of Human Rights have an overlapping jurisdiction. Now, I make this point because, as might be obvious from the very bare outline I gave a moment or so ago about the competences of the EU and the Convention, there is an overlap. The most obvious area is in anti-discrimination law. The Convention under Article 14 contains a right to non-discrimination. That's been there since the establishment of the European Convention in 1950-51. The European Union, again from its conception in 1957 as the European Economic Community, has had a right to non-discrimination on the basis of sex, it being felt that sex discrimination in the workplace was a hindrance to free trade. That right to non-discrimination has been progressively expanded, and it now applies to most of the grounds that in fact exist in the European Convention. So there are a certain range of cases where a litigant might, in theory, be able to take their case either down the EU route or down the European Convention route, and where national courts have the problem of trying to work out which of these two routes they should be going down themselves in a case before them, you know, before it gets to the European level. So again, there's a, there's a tricky intellectual problem here in all European member states. Well, in explaining these points in further detail, I should start off, I think, with the domestic standpoint in the UK, as this will give us a route into thinking about the power that the two European courts actually have. Um, I've set this out under heading one on the handout sheet. English common law is a somewhat unusual device, constitutionally speaking, in that traditionally our paramount rule, and bear in mind we, we do have a constitution. Um, it's a <laughs> point of national pride here. We do, we do have a constitution, honest. Um, it's just that it's not written down. Um, but the paramount rule of English constitutional law is the notion that Parliament may pass any legislation it chooses and no court may override or set aside that law. I'm paraphrasing here from the work of uh, Albert Dicey, who is still considered to be the uh, godfather, if you like, of English constitutional law. Um, now, this maxim was, until very recently, applied with real rigour by the courts. A classic example is the Ellen Street Estates versus Minister case, which I put on the sheet this case makes clear that even if Parliament, in one statute, appears to give the impression that it wants to lay down a rule that is binding on future Parliaments, nonetheless, that piece of legislation may still be overridden in the ordinary way by the later Parliament. The case concerned an act which laid down compensation provisions for the acquisition of property by the state. The earlier act laid down compensation at a certain rate uh, and stated that the rates concerned would apply effectively regardless of future events. Well, the later Parliament came along and simply passed a later statute which laid down different rates of compensation. Um, obviously, the person whose property was acquired compulsorily went to court and said, well, hang on a moment, here we have this earlier piece of legislation that says the more generous rates will apply for all time. Um, I want to be paid at the earlier, more generous rate, please. And the court said, no, Parliament may pass any legislation it chooses so long as it appears to be legislation at the end, any apparent guarantee contained in earlier legislation is simply overridden. Um, all legislation may be overridden by later legislation, either expressly or indeed impliedly. So it laid out the Dicean rule, if you like, in its full force. Now, very clearly, that rule has come in for challenge given Britain's membership of the European Union and, to a lesser extent, the European Convention on Human Rights. One way of understanding this challenge is an idea that uh, a colleague and I tried expressing in a book, um, the notion of a multi-layered constitution. And I put the reference to this on heading two under the sheet. The Dicean conception of the English constitution is clearly one in which Parliament is legally all-powerful obviously not politically all-powerful, but legally all-powerful, can do whatever it chooses, and the courts have no power in blocking Parliament. Their power is confined to the interpretation of legislation. In that sense, thinking of the UK as a democracy, it is what could be described as a self-correcting democracy. If Parliament gets it wrong, Parliament has to sort it out. It corrects itself. The courts have no power beyond interpretation in sorting it out if Parliament badly messes things up through legislation. Now, 
Obviously, Britain's membership of the European Union carried with it the obligation that jurisdiction be given to the European Court of Justice, the EU court, to override rules of national law, if needs be. And, as slowly emerged, national courts are obliged to override rules of national law as well, if they conflict with EU norms. Now, I'll go into in a second the various different accounts of how this happened and what it means, but the point, of course, is that it having happened, the Constitution can no longer be seen as self-correcting in the Dicean sense. Actually, whenever there's a directly enforceable EU rule in play in a case, that rule has to take priority, and if needs be, rules of national law have to be set aside. The courts, in other words, acquire a correcting role. Now, the position with the European Convention is a little bit different. Uh, and again, I'll come on to the details of this in a second, but the basic point is that the courts have what might be described as a, a sort of a semi-correcting role under the European Convention. They can't actually set aside legislation, but they can indicate to the Parliament when it needs to do so. So the result of all of this is that the domestic constitution, and I think this is true for most Western European jurisdictions, could be seen to be multi-layered. If a court is handling a case that involves purely matters of domestic law, so a case with no EU dimension to it and no convention dimension to it, the traditional Dicean rule still applies. The court has to apply the Act of Parliament as it stands. It may interpret it, but it certainly can't set it aside on any ground. On the other hand, if there's a case involving an EU issue, the court is required to set aside a statute if it's incompatible with the rule of EU law. And then in the middle, if there's a case that involves a convention issue, the court can point out to Parliament if a statute breaches a convention right. It can't directly overrule it, but on the other hand, the political pressure of the breach of convention rights having been pointed out is usually sufficiently great that the Westminster Parliament will get rid of the relevant statute anyway. So in one area, the Constitution remains self-correcting. In another area, it's sort of semi-self-correcting. And in the third area, the EU area, it's court-corrected. Um, so what we have at the end of the day is something which you could describe as a multi-layered dimension. It depends upon the area of law that you're in, exactly what correction role the courts have, and what self-correcting role is left to the Parliament itself. And you know that would appear to be a problem that applies throughout Western European democracies. National courts in areas covered only by national law continue to apply national norms. But when you get to other areas, there's a real question about what what overriding power is given to the different European norms. So quite an unusual position, even by the standpoint of US disputes about states' rights and federal versus state-level jurisdiction and the rest. It's, it's actually an added layer of complexity, if you like. Well, how has this played out in the United Kingdom? Let's start with European Union laws. This is the stronger example. The European Court of Justice's notion that EU rules take priority, comes out of two cases, um, Van Gendenloos from 1962 and Koster and ENEL from 1964. I put references to both of those on the sheet. In Koster, the court lays down the general principle of supremacy of European law over national law. In Van Gendenloos, even though it was the earlier case, the court actually reasons in a little more detail and sets out the test that is to be used and this test or vehicle is known as direct effect. The court essentially says in Van Gendenloos that where a rule of EU law is sufficiently clear and precise and imposes clear and precise obligations on national level authorities, national courts are obliged to apply that rule in their own litigation. And the argument the Court of Justice used was, first of all, the drafting of the EC Treaty itself plainly envisaged that individual citizens would have the right themselves to take cases to the Luxembourg Court, the European Court of Justice. This obviously meant that those cases had to originate somewhere. That somewhere was in national courts, which then had the power to refer the cases on to the ECJ, if needs be, for a final interpretation. So one argument in the background here is treaty interpretation, the second argument, though, that the court very strongly employs is to say the EC, as it then was, EU as it now is, is a new legal order. Unlike other international treaties, it's designed directly to give rights and to impose obligations on citizens. 
It's not merely an intergovernmental treaty. It's a broader, more ambitious, more deep-reaching thing. So for that reason, it should be something which directly infuses into the legal systems of all of the member states, give citizens the right to sue using it in their own national courts. Now, this reasoning reached its high point in terms of force in the Fact Team case in 1989. In this case, uh, a group of Spanish fishing companies which wished to fish off the coasts of the UK sued the British government. Um, the Westminster Parliament, basically due to political fear that there would be a huge uproar in the UK if it was felt that domestic fishing stock uh, was being, as it were, used up by fish Spanish fishing companies, passed an act in 19 1988 which imposed a very complex registration procedure for non-British companies that wished to fish in British waters. Now, fairly obviously, the details of this statute were in conflict with the rules of EU law concerning the freedom of individuals or companies to move between different EU member states to provide services um, or to receive them. The Spanish fishing companies embarked on litigation. Uh, and in fact, Factotame has generated something like 10 large cases now, which have made millions and millions and millions for the lawyers involved and uh, quite large amounts of money for the Spanish fishing companies. It uh, has turned out to be one of the most expensive issues in litigation in recent legal history in the UK. But anyway, in Factotame 2, the case that I put on the sheet here, uh, the European Court of Justice said to the British courts, if there is any rule of national law, whether it be a statute a rule of common law or anything else that is in conflict with directly effective rules of European Union law, the national courts must, if necessary, set that legislation aside and give priority to the conflicting rules of European Union law. Now, this was an absolutely direct and clear judgment. There were no ifs or buts or hesitations in it. It was perfectly plain. If there is an incompatible rule of national law, it must be set aside. Now, this, of course, presented a real difficulty for the domestic courts in the UK. Ever since Britain had joined the European Union on 1st January 1973, domestic courts had managed to get around the problem of what happened if there was a conflict with EU law, usually by quite careful exercises in interpretation or arguing that cases could be distinguished on their facts or whatever. Sooner or later, though, it was obvious that there was going to be a case where a, a statute directly conflicted with the rule of EU law, and the question would then arise... What did national courts do? Now, when the fact same case first reached the House of Lords, Judicial Committee of the House of Lords, Britain's highest court, um, it was dealt with largely by interpretation. This is the, the first fact same reference I put under the domestic perspectives heading here. The first time fact same got to the House of Lords, the law lord said, OK, there may well be a conflict here between a directly effective rule of European Union law and a rule of national law. Nonetheless, we have to abide by the long-standing theory of parliamentary sovereignty and apply the most recent rule of national law. Nonetheless, we recognize that there's room for a lot of argument here, especially from the standpoint of European Union law, and so we'll refer the case on to the European Court of Justice for its ruling. Now, of course, as I've just said, the European Court of Justice answered by saying, you must apply the rule of EU law. Set aside the national statute, please. This presents the House of Lords with a real difficulty when the case gets back to it. Now, by and large, most of the judges in the case, when it comes back from the European Court of Justice, now I should add, by the way, the, the way that the European Court of Justice works is that you, you don't take a case directly there as a litigant. You take your case first to the national court, and it will refer it on if it thinks that there's an issue of interpretation that the ECJ needs to sort out. So anyway, the case comes back from the European Court of Justice with a clear instruction as to how to interpret. The majority of the House of Lords simply say, well, OK, fine, we will have to set aside the rule of national law. What we'll treat this as is a slightly unusual example of a case involving an injunction. We'll treat this as a case involving an injunction against the relevant government minister to stop them from applying the incompatible national statute. And we'll go through our standard reasoning about how you grant an injunction against a government minister and the types of sensitivity involved in granting injunctions against government ministers. And I mean, that there's a further different development in the case in the background about the law concerning injunctions and the rest. So the majority of the law lords just thought, OK, we'll avoid the constitutional issue and deal with this 
purely using injunctions-related reasoning. Now, the one judge who didn't is Lord Bridge, and it's his judgment that really is interesting from the constitutional standpoint. Um, he tried as hard as he could do, I think, to reconcile the decision from the European Court of Justice with domestic Dicean orthodoxy. His argument was as follows. When Britain joined the European Union, obviously as a matter of international law, it signed up. It signed the EC Treaty. It signed an accord with the other member states. That, though, is an issue for public international law. And obviously as a matter of public international law, as the European Court of Justice understands the rules of the EU, EU rules take priority over national law. But that isn't enough. We obviously have to understand why a national court can give priority to a rule of EU law involving setting aside a national statute. The way we can do that, he argued, is, is as follows. When Parliament agreed that Britain should join the EU, it passed a statute, the European Communities Act 1972, so as to set out the rules of European community law, to set out the role of courts in national law, now that we join the EU, and so on. That statute contained three sections, sections, sections 2.1, 2.4, and 3.1. Between them, those sections oblige national courts to give overriding precedent status to decisions of the European Court of Justice and oblige them to give effect to rules of European Union law and decisions coming out of the European Court of Justice. Therefore, when we, as a domestic court, abide by the judgment of the European Court of Justice and set aside the incompatible national legislation, all that we're doing is carrying out Parliament's will as expressed in sections 2 and 3 of the 1972 Act. So we're really doing nothing revolutionary. Here we've got sections 2 and 3 of the 1972 Act. The combined effect of these sections is that, as the European Court of Justice has now told us, sometimes we as a national court have to set aside statutes. So, you know, that's what we're doing here. It's purely evolutionary. Now, as commentators rapidly pointed out, this was perhaps the jurisprudential understatement of, of the century. Um, in every earlier case, the courts had made clear that where two statutes appear to conflict with each other, you always gave priority to the later statute, whatever the wording of the earlier statute. Yet here, in fact, today, we have two statutes that appear to conflict with each other. The European Communities Act 1972, sections two and three of which, as Lord Bridge says, give priority to EU rules. But then we have the later 1988 Merchant Shipping Act, which imposed the registration procedure on the Spanish fishing vessels. And that later act is plainly inconsistent with EU law. Under any orthodox rule of construction, the 1988 Act must surely take priority over the 1972 Act. It must impliedly repeal the 1972 Act to the extent that the two are inconsistent. Um, it is a gross simplification to say that all the Parliament is doing is carrying through the intentions from 1972, because that would not be an interpretation that has ever before been applied or would be applied in any other context. So a second theory that arose to explain what had happened is what's called the revolution view. And I set out references for these at the top of page two of the handout. The revolution view was advanced by William Wade, who, when alive, was one of Britain's sort of most well-respected constitutional theorists, and had been somebody who, back in 1955, had written what's long been felt to be the definitive explanation of the orthodox parliamentary sovereignty principle. Now, the sad thing is that Wade's own explanation of what was happening in fact attained is itself somewhat deficient. He quite properly draws attention to the problems in Lord Bridge's explanation. However, he goes on to say, well, okay, fine, the Bridge explanation doesn't work, basically for the reason I've just cited. So what we have to assume has happened is that there's been some type of constitutional revolution. Um, the courts ultimately are the bodies charged with understanding parliamentary sovereignty and interpreting it. At the end of the day, it is a it's a common law rule as well as a constitutional principle. Um, therefore, it's the courts who can reinterpret it. Um, the courts here have reinterpreted it in the light of the political reality of EU membership. It's essentially a switch of constitutional allegiance. That's a political switch. So really, the way to think about this is some type of politically revolutionary switch of allegiance. Not revolution as in tanks on streets, simply revolution as in a bold and dynamic and decisive change. Now, of course, the trouble with that view I mean, possibly 
politically more realist though it may be, is that it is, in legal terms, hyper-realist. As lawyers, we tend to assume that courts reason by justification from precedent. We tend to assume that we have a certain degree of understanding of where courts might go, of the routes open to courts in the future, on the basis of their interpretation of past precedent and so on. Merely to say, oh, it's a politically revolutionary switch of allegiance is just not adequate for lawyers. It may be adequate as a statement of political science, but lawyers, of course, are concerned with authority, how authority justifies conclusions, the range of future possible conclusions that past authority may justify, and so forth. For lawyers, the Wade explanation really doesn't work. Now, a third explanation that has been floated, which again has its problems, comes from Lord Justice Laws in a later case called Thoburn and Sunderland. This, again, was a case to do with the conflict between rules of EU law and national law. Now, to explain the law's view, I should just point out a basic difference between the Lord Bridge argument, it's all evolutionary, and the Wade argument, it's a political revolution. That difference is this. For Lord Bridge, the key constitutional actor in giving priority to norms of EU law is plainly Parliament. After all, Lord Bridge's argument is, all we're doing in setting aside the 1988 Act is to carry through the logical consequences of Parliament's own intentions in its drafting of the 1972 Act. Hence, no threat to parliamentary sovereignty. On the Wade view, by contrast, the courts are the key actors. The courts are the people constitutionally who have charge of explaining and understanding the common law, part of which is the rule of parliamentary sovereignty. The courts have undergone a revolutionary switch of political allegiance, Hence, the courts are the key actors in switching the status of Parliament's rules in domestic law. Now, Lord Brid sorry, Lord Justice Laws in the Thoburn case is not quite occupying a middle position, but he is occupying a position somewhere between the two. His argument is, again, that the courts are the key actors. However, he says, it's not a revolutionary political event that's occurred. Rather, the courts have charge of the interpretation and development of the common law. At this stage in Britain's constitutional history, it can be accepted that the common law has evolved of its own initiative to the extent that some statutes have more power, more weight, than do others. Under the old Dicey theory, of course, all statutes are equal. All could be equally easily removed by later statutes. On the law's view, what has now happened is that a special class of statutes, he calls them constitutional statutes, has emerged in British common law. Ordinary statutes are those which deal with day-to-day -day matters. Constitutional statutes, however, are those which are identified by the courts, noticed by the courts, as dealing with the powers of government institutions or the fundamental rights of citizens. So he includes things like devolution legislation, and the Act of Union with Scotland, the European Communities Act, and the later Human Rights Act, which brings the European Convention into domestic law, as examples of constitutional statutes. These statutes have, may have special immunities from different types of repeal, he argues. And this is his explanation of fact attain. Now, we can certainly say that the law's view is preferable to Wade's. He is at least tying his argument into legal reasoning, not just rather vague political analysis. He's also giving us, unlike Wade, something of a route map to how courts may handle things in future. He's not just saying, oh, it's all a matter of political speculation, political revolution, etc., which tells us nothing about how a court might handle a future case. Rather, he is saying this is a matter of the evolving common law. Here we have some rules for identifying certain statutes as constitutional and therefore as possessing a special weight. The downside, of course, is that he is reasoning entirely off his own bat. He has no authority to cite in support of these propositions that he's making. And indeed, as many commentators have assumed, one could describe it as something of a judicial power grab. All of a sudden, the judges have the discretion to recognize certain statutes passed by Parliament as possessing of special properties, and therefore being pretty difficult for Parliament to remove if it chooses to later. Um, it's, it's something which you know, is, is disturbing politically for quite a number of people. So all of these views have their drawbacks. The reason for setting them up in detail is that they all have implications for how we think about the later event, which is the bringing of the European Convention into domestic law. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Convention has far less weight than the European Union. By its own lights, national governments, national courts must give adequate remedies, but these are, at the end of the day, enforceable as a matter of international law, 
There's nothing in the Convention that tells national courts what they have to do specifically. Article 13, the, the, the main article on this, is fairly vague in its drafting and implications. Now, this meant that between 1950 and 51, when Britain joined the Convention, and 1st October 2000, when the Human Rights Act came into force, domestic courts did not have the power to apply Convention rights directly. Citizens from the period 1966 to 7 were given the right to take cases to the Strasbourg Court if they wanted to, but domestic courts did not have the power directly to apply Convention rights. The most they could do, as was recognized in some cases at the start of the 1990s, was to take them into account in cases of ambiguity, but that was fairly rare. Now, one thing that this obviously meant was that the Strasbourg Court was itself not concerned to tell national courts that they had to apply convention rights directly. In cases brought against the United Kingdom, pre-Human Rights Act, obviously the Strasbourg Court would issue rulings against the UK if it felt that, on a case-specific basis, the UK had breached the convention. However, it never laid down a general statement saying... UK law is inadequate because you don't have a Human Rights Act. It merely handled things on a case-specific basis. So the Human Rights Act can't be seen as, if you like, a dictate of the Strasbourg Court. It was something that was purely chosen domestically. And for that reason, the Strasbourg Court has continued largely on a case-by-case basis to say, are aspects of domestic law compatible with the Convention or not? And if they're incompatible, it's more an issue of public international law than something that domestic courts can do anything about. So there's a fundamental difference there with EU law. Now, when Parliament drafted the Human Rights Act, it obviously already had in mind EU law and what had happened there, the fact that uh, domestic courts had started setting statutes aside for incompatibility with EU law. Parliament was determined to avoid a similar fate in the case of the Convention. Therefore, it set up an extremely unusual structure in the Human Rights Act. Section 3 instructs domestic courts that they must interpret legislation as far as is possible in the light of Convention rights. Similarly, Section 6 places an enforceable duty on public authorities to act in accordance with Convention rights. However, Parliament is exempted from that duty, so Parliament is not obliged to pass legislation in accordance with Convention rights. And furthermore, Section 4 and parts of Section 6 of the Act make clear that where a statute on its drafting is incompatible with Convention rights, All that a court may do is to make a declaration of that incompatibility. It still has to apply the statute, though, to the case. It can't set it aside. The declaration is merely a signal to Parliament that it needs to think about changing the statute for future cases. In the case in hand, the court has to apply the statute as it is. Similarly, if judicial review is being sought of executive action under Section 6, all that the court can do, if the executive can show that it was obliged to act as it did, by the provisions of the statute, is again to make a declaration. It can't grant a remedy against the executive. The litigant's only recourse, where there is a declaration, is to appeal upwards to the Strasbourg Court, perhaps to try and get damages or something of that type. But obviously that's a very lengthy, time-consuming and expensive process, so most litigants don't bother to go through it. So the Human Rights Act is designed to operate in a quite different way from the European Communities Act. Now, it leaves us with two overriding problems to tie back to the overriding themes of this talk. The first is whether the mere drafting of the Act on its own is decisive in terms of the limits of what courts might do. The second problem is how do domestic courts handle a case where there is both an EU right involved and a convention right? given that they clearly are under an obligation to apply the EU right and set aside national legislation, but they aren't allowed to do the same thing where there's a convention right involved, which puts them in a rather awkward position. Now, starting with the first issue, if it's the case that it's correct to say that the overthrow, or at least heavy qualification of parliamentary sovereignty in EU cases is due to the courts rather than parliament whether you take the Wade Revolution view or the law's interpretation view, then one might think that the drafting of the Human Rights Act itself is not decisive of the issue. How much power do courts have in a case where there is a convention right in conflict with an incompatible national statute? 
If the Wade view of factor tame is right, then courts are entitled to undergo a revolutionary switch of political allegiance. If they'd done it with the EU, can't they do it with the Convention and just say, regardless of the drafting of the Human Rights Act 1998, nonetheless, we feel we have an overriding obligation to give priority to Convention rights. Okay, this involves a bold take on Article 13, but nonetheless, we're being particularly revolutionary here. Can't we do that, regardless of the drafting? And that is a view that has been attributed to Wade in print at various points. The second possibility, the Laws LJ interpretation-based common law view, can again be applied quite radically to the Human Rights Act. Laws himself, in the Thoburn case, said obiter dicta, that he thought the Human Rights Act to be a constitutional statute. Now, if that's the case, then presumably it is immune from various types of implied repeal, in the same way that these other statutes are, according to laws. Presumably it is harder for Parliament to amend it. And presumably, if the reinterpretation of the common law to allow for constitutional statutes can occur in Thoburn, further reinterpretations can occur in later cases, further to protect these statutes from different types of repeal. So again, if the law's view is right, then the drafting of sections 3, 4, and 6 of the Human Rights Act is not decisive of how much power national courts have. It's really only if you take the Lord Bridge view from the Factstone case and say it all turns on Parliament's own drafting, and I've already explained the site artificiality in that view, it's only if you take the Lord Bridge view that sections 3, 4, and 6 will be decisive. So in fact, in working out the future operation of the multi-layered constitutional structure that's emerged, it's going to be absolutely crucial to work out whether we see the courts or the legislature as the key actor in defining the weight to be given to these European norms now that they are in domestic law. A rather difficult and deep-rooted debate about the nature of constitutional democracy. So that's the first big issue. The second big issue is what happens where there are both EU rights and convention rights in the same case. And I can perhaps illustrate this if I talk about a rather intriguing case that arose three years ago, Chief Counsel of West Yorkshire and A, which I've set out under heading five on the sheet, which involved quite clearly a potential jurisdictional overlap between the two courts. Now, the Chief Constable case and a slightly earlier case that touches on similar facts, Bellinger, both involved people who had undergone gender reassignment operations. Now, the point here is that the European Court of Justice, in case law from the early 1990s, had ruled that EU law dealing with employment, where it covered sex discrimination, also protected from discrimination people who had undergone gender reassignment. So the scope of gender, sorry, the scope of sex discrimination was given a wide interpretation so as to cover those who had changed sex, as well as those who remained in their original biological sex. Similarly, but not until 2003 to 4, the European Court of Human Rights accepted that it was a violation of Article 8 of the Convention not to allow someone who had had gender reassignment to alter their sex on their birth certificate. So again, in terms of Article 8, the right to private life, and Article 14, the right to non-discrimination under the Convention, it appeared that discrimination on the basis of gender reassignment was precluded. Now, Convention rights potentially apply to all action by public authorities, and indeed in domestic law, to all action by private actors as well, if a statute is involved. By contrast, the scope of EU law is largely confined to employment and other economic issues. So whether there's room for overlap or not really does depend on the subject matter of the case. Now, Bellinger had to be argued by domestic courts under the Convention. Bellinger was a case in which somebody wished to have their sex reassigned on their original birth certificate. Now, at the time, domestic law did not make provision for this happening, and the European Court of Human Rights, when the Bellinger litigation started, hadn't, heard the issue, hadn't decided the issue either. So all the way up to the House of Lords, the litigant lost in Bellinger. When they got to the House of Lords, the Court of Human Rights had, issued, had started to issue rulings to say, you may not discriminate on the basis of gender reassignment. So when the case reached the House of Lords, it was determined that the legislation that prevented somebody from reassigning their sex on their birth certificate was indeed incompatible with the legislation, but the only thing that could be done was to issue a declaration of incompatibility under Section 4. The legislation was clearly inconsistent in terms. Parliament then passed a statute, the Gender Recognition Act, that allowed people to reassign their birth certificates. 
Now, in the meantime, however, the A case had arisen. A involved someone who had undergone gender reassignment and wished to become a police officer. Now, the difficulty they faced was that under the legislation governing police officers, one of the duties of a police officer is sometimes to engage in what's described as an intimate search of a suspect. Um, you know, i.e. clothes are removed, parts of bodies are examined for things like drugs and the rest of it. And the legislation makes clear, at least in its guidance notes, that if you are conducting an intimate search of the suspect, you must be of the same sex as the suspect. Now, the trouble the chief constable faced, of course, in A's application to become a police officer was that A was now a woman, in which case she could only, under rules applicable to the police, examine female suspects. However, her birth certificate said that she was a man, um, in which case she couldn't examine female suspects, only male suspects. But on the other hand, presumably male suspects would not feel happy being examined by somebody who, to all intents and purposes, was a woman. Hence, A was denied her application to the police. Um, she sued, arguing sex discrimination. Now, because it was an employment issue, the obvious route for A to use was European Union law, especially as there's more settled precedent in the EU cases. So the case goes up to the House of Lords. The argument is the relevant EU directive precludes discrimination in employment on the basis of gender reassignment as well as of sex. Therefore, she has been discriminated against in turning down her application to become a police officer. Now, of course, domestic courts, since the Bellinger case was trundling through at the same time, had seized onto the fact that they could hardly consider one without considering the other. And so the issue facing the House of Lords was, okay, we have to determine whether provisions of the police legislation are incompatible with European Union law using the directive, you know, the, the rules contained precluding gender discrimination in EU law. However, we've also got this case law that's now coming out of the European Court of Human Rights that is telling us that it's also a breach of a convention right. So how do we understand the national legislation in the light of the EU directive in the light of the European Convention on Human Rights? Now, the somewhat complicated conclusion that the House of Lords reached was that while they should take account of the case law of the convention in this case, they needn't apply it directly. This was for two reasons. First of all, the directive itself covered the facts of the case comfortably. Secondly, um, the case law coming out of the Court of Human Rights was interpreted as being largely forward-looking in its application, whereas the European Court of Justice case law was backward-looking as well as forward-looking. Therefore, the House of Lords could resolve the case using only the European Court of Justice case law. It needn't think about the European Court of Human Rights case law. Now, while this tidily dealt with the matter on the facts of the case, Mazet got her remedy, etc., it's nonetheless hugely question-begging in terms of what courts might do in the future. While the two case laws are consistent, or at least are now consistent, on the area of gender reassignment, there are other areas where they are not consistent. What is a domestic court to do where the directly effective rules of EU law appear to say one thing, and remember the Court of Justice tells national courts that it must apply directly effective rules regardless of any inconsistent rules of national law, but what if then the rules of the convention are silent or say something slightly different? And obviously section three of the Human Rights Act does enjoin national courts to apply convention rights as far as is possible and tells them that the only thing they can do if there is incompatibility is to issue a declaration under section four. Now what this means of course is that a case where there is a jurisdictional overlap, where those two possibly conflicting instructions to courts are in place is going to be an absolutely acid test of First of all, the competing priorities which national courts give to these two different levels of European norm, and in turn their comprehension of the multi-layered nature of the domestic constitution, of their own powers, how far they go and so forth. And secondly, it's going to be a test of whether the courts actually feel themselves to be confined by the drafting of the European Communities Act and the Human Rights Act, the Lord Bridge view, or whether they feel that they do in fact have the ability to go further in their common law reasoning, or even quote stake a political decision, the Wade view, and move beyond the terms of that legislation to try to, to try to achieve a measure of harmony if there is none at European level. That of course again is an issue of fundamental legal and democratic constitutional importance. How far do we think that courts should actually have the powers to do these things where either the legislature is silent or even more difficult where there are two different bodies of, if you like, federal level stroke international law, which appear to be fundamentally different in their outlook and orientation on these issues. Well, I probably better finish with those two points, but I hope you can see why these questions are of 
concern at a conceptual international level as well as just at a domestic level for Western European countries. Thank you. Well, it was it was it was talked about, but the, I mean, essentially, the, the fishing companies managed to get around this issue. I'm, I can't exactly remember how they, but they, they, I mean, they managed to argue that there was, as it were, a, a provision, that, a, a way by which they could get through that agreement. I think it was using the doctrine of direct effect, the notion that they were service providers, and essentially, an informal agreement did not, you know, did not apply in those contexts. So, yeah. I mean, they, they, they were smart litigants. <laughs> That's a very interesting question. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I'd hesitate to say that that's definitely true. I mean, that would be the common sense answer, certainly. But on the other hand, since he's saying there are some statutes that are harder to repeal than others, you could imagine a sort of a, yeah, yeah, sort of an exponential thing almost. Yes, the, the, yes, the later statute finds it harder to repeal the earlier statute, which in turn finds it harder to repeal an earlier statute. Still, I mean, you know, sadly, he didn't, he didn't go into this in enormous detail. Well, actually, you know, one of the inadequacies of the law's approach in this case is that uh, you know, he makes these remarkable, groundbreaking constitutional points in the space of really a very small number of paragraphs in his judgment. And obviously, commentators and litigants have seized on these paragraphs and uh, argued about them inordinately. But uh, I mean, he, he really doesn't go into that level of depth. So what, how he would actually explain this, I don't know. I mean, you know, again, a related problem is you know, simply saying the common law gives special weight to all of these statutes seemingly on a similar basis. He, he is ignoring the crucial point that, of course, the Court of Justice gives a far greater weight to its norms than the Court of Human Rights gives to its norms, you know, which you would imagine should be a fairly important interpretive point in, in this exercise, but doesn't seem to be for him. So how, you know, how, he, how he would therefore deal with an issue of that type, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, it occurs to me that with the Human Rights Act in 1998, which refers to the Convention, yes. but not to EU Yeah, law, that's right. Yes. So isn't this, couldn't this be interpreted as Parliament saying we don't want uh, to have direct effect in human rights law? Otherwise, we would have said it. I mean, we had this opportunity yeah. in the Human Rights Act to spell out how we yes. do these things. So it seems like Parliament was in effect for overriding previous statutes that could mm -hmm. be interpreted as giving all this authority to the ECJ and the EU, yes. simply by not reaffirming that. Yeah. No, I, I could see that that could be an argument you'd use, yes. I mean, I suppose the, the counter-argument would be to say, well, hang on a moment, the, the Court of Justice, the Court that handles EU law, does sometimes take account itself of Court of Human Rights judgments. And to that extent, if there was a case that even prima facie fell within the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice, it would still, its, still itself feel it had jurisdiction, you know, to award a remedy against a national government that tried to block off national courts from looking at that issue by saying, oh, this is a human rights point, not, a, not an EU point. So I can see that the Court of Justice, you know, might respond in a hostile way to, to an argument of the type that you're suggesting. But, yeah, you know, I can see how you might, you might try to run it. Wondering if it provides more of a sort of rhetorical instrument, if that was part of its original purpose. Or right. 
yes, that, 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 I mean, that again is, is, is a very good point. Uh, I mean, in fact, you know, the, there are two dimensions to what the Court of Human Rights does that could be said to affect that. One, obviously, that you mentioned is the derogation provision. You know, under Article 15, uh, a state can either derogate in general from particular provisions of the Convention if that's proportionate to a legitimate policy goal laid down in the Convention, or indeed it can opt out of a particular judgment if it chooses to. Um, but yes, I mean, the, the second doctrine the Court uses is the thing known as the margin of appreciation. Um, so what the court consistently argues, at least in areas where there doesn't appear to be a consensus of opinion or a strong enough consensus among signatory states, will usually be that it is an international tribunal, um, it's a court, not a political decision maker, and therefore it's sufficiently far away removed from the original national government decision to act in a particular way that it mustn't override. Um, it will leave it until there is, if you like, a consensus among the different signatory states. Now, obviously, that's a, that's a million miles away from the Court of Justice's approach, which is to say, you know, EU case law takes priority regardless. Um, and I suppose, yes, you, you can trace that back to purposes in the sense, I mean, I think I trace that back not so much to the purposes of the Convention, actually, but to the purposes, by contrast, of, of EU law. Uh, I mean, the stance, at least, which the Court of Justice takes is, you know, EU law is here to promote economic integration. Um, that's its job. Therefore, sometimes we have to be tough with signatory states. Um, we are a new legal order. We're something quite unusual, if not unique. Um, yeah, and therefore we have this overriding priority. Whereas I suppose, yes, the Court of Human Rights, although it wouldn't say so explicitly, since it's handling a more standard international treaty, will sometimes steer clear of yes, trampling too hard on the feelings of the, the signatory states. So, yes. Indeed, yes. Yes, yes, I mean, yeah, yes, that's right. And equally, I mean, there have been various cases on tortious liability where this has happened. Um, I think it, it tends to be in either one of two, two ways. I mean, one way is simply almost to treat the authority of the Strasbourg Court in precedent terms as being a bit like that of a, a weak federal court, if you like, in the sense that, or, or maybe, say, of a federal court in a case that mainly involves a state-level constitution. Um, the Strasbourg Court is seen as having jurisdiction to apply a decisive rule in, a, in an area within its own jurisdiction where the case applies directly, sorry, arises directly. Um, however, national courts retain the freedom to interpret the rulings of the Strasbourg Court. And certainly there are lots of national level dicta that say um, if there is a rule of, ruling of the Strasbourg Court that appears to be fundamentally at odds with a deep level domestic constitutional provision, a national court might have to reserve its, its position. So, I mean, in that sense, there's, there's a measure of caution which national courts usually use when dealing with rulings from the Strasbourg Court. So, you know, they may well, if the area feels uncontentious, just be happy to say, well, okay, fine, this is like a federal court. Sometimes federal courts overrule themselves. We'll just have to live with that. On the other hand, if it's an area which appears to be more contentious to them for domestic reasons, then there's a certain amount of willingness, I suppose, to dilute or reinterpret or whatever, but that's pretty rare. Uh, <clears throat> so that would be one issue here. I mean, a second issue would simply be, and I mean, I'm thinking of the tort liability cases here. National courts do sometimes try and say, well, hang on a moment. The Strasbourg Court's job is to interpret convention rights at an abstract level. And whether there has been a restriction on the facts of the case on a convention right, but considered in abstract terms. The Strasbourg Court has no understanding of the causes of action at national level, which get people into a national court, uh, and through which the Strasbourg Convention right then has to come into play. Uh, and so a tactic which certainly many of the UK domestic courts used with the tort liability cases was simply to say, you know, before the Strasbourg Court overruled itself, look, in the original decision, the Strasbourg Court just didn't understand the nature of the cause of action that got the litigant into the court in the first place. Had they understood the nature of the cause of action properly, they would have made the following ruling. So here's how we apply their judgment. So, I mean, again, you know, that is a recognized technique that gets, gets used. Uh, yeah. You mentioned um, conflicts between the law under the EU mm. and under the Convention. And I'm wondering <clears throat> how extensive are those conflicts? And also, is there any mechanism for ironing them out, for harmonizing between those two bodies of law, other than working it out in the domestic courts? Right. Well, the obvious resolution would be one which still hasn't quite happened, um, which would be for the European Union itself directly to join the European Convention. Uh, I mean, if that happened, then Strasbourg Court authority would take priority over Luxembourg Court precedent, um, and the Luxembourg Court would be bound by decisions of the Strasbourg Court. 
Um, the EU made a move towards doing this in the early 1990s, but the Court of Justice actually ruled at the time that it was outside the jurisdiction of the EU under its then treaty powers to do this. So it would take an amendment to the treaty specifically to grant the EU the power to sign up to the Convention. So that, it seems, would be the ultimate way out of it. And it would, of course, have the, the very dramatic effect of giving the European Court of Human Rights precedent direct effect in itself, presumably, although it would lead to the messy solution then that litigants really would have a completely free choice as to which court to go to. Now, I mean, in terms of areas of conflict, uh, the, the really obvious ones that have come up in the case law so far all concern sex discrimination. I think for the, the obvious reason that sex discrimination was, historically speaking, the, the area where there, there was the most obvious overlap in, in jurisdiction. I mean, until the early 1990s, the European Union only had jurisdiction over that type of discrimination and nationality discrimination, not others. So it's the most obvious route. So, I mean, in terms of the case law, apart from the uh, gender reassignment example, the, the two most obvious examples from the last 15 years have either involved uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation um, or discrimination, uh, sorry, or, or access to abortion rights. Uh, I mean, there's a series of cases from Ireland in the 90s because uh, the Republic of Ireland has enacted a constitutional prohibition on abortion. Um, and those who wish to challenge that, uh, you know, sort of pushed one set of cases up to the Court of Human Rights, and then a separate case to the Court of Justice, uh, talking about people who wish to travel from Ireland to other EU member states to receive an abortion, and that fell within the freedom of travel to receive a service rule. Um, and in fact, they they lost in a fairly technical point in the Court of Justice, but it was you know quite interesting twin litigation strategy. I mean, similarly with discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation at work, there were a set of cases from the late 90s. Um, one involved a person denied an employment benefit for a same-sex partner. Um, the other involved a group of military personnel who were discharged from the armed forces on the basis of sexual orientation. And one case went to the Court of Justice, one to the Court of Human Rights. And again, somewhat contradictory results appeared. Um, now, I mean, the EC Treaty was amended later on expressly to preclude discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, so there's no longer a conflict there. But certainly for a period of years, it looked as though the Court of Justice was adopting a less generous interpretation of the Court of Human Rights, which w would have led national courts into real problems had they had to handle litigation on that. So it is something which occasionally arises. I mean, a, a further area would be, I imagine, though I don't think it's particularly cropped up yet, but you know, the Commission, the European Commission uh, under the European Union has a series of investigatory powers in, for example, competition enforcement proceedings. And one could imagine that Convention Article 6 issues to do with fair hearing and the rest could come into play there, but I, I don't think that's really a live issue in case law at the moment, but yeah. I, I'm sorry, yes. So that's, that's a very interesting point. Um, I mean, I suppose what it begs is the much larger question of how far legal resolution of disputes is a political act in itself or how far it can give way to political acts and the rest. And in, in many ways, I suppose this is a, a very complicated example of, of exactly that problem. Uh, I mean, legal scholars obviously are aware of the political dimensions of the problems that are at stake. I mean, I suppose the problem is sort of our, our stock in trade, if you like, is, is reasoning in terms of precedent. And that is the stock in trade of, of courts as well. And so a court really, well, I, I think a court would feel utterly uncomfortable with the notion of talking in the language explicitly of the political realities of the situation or political sovereignty. Uh, you know, a court would really have to reach for the language of legal precedent to, to resolve an issue like this, however artificial it may seem. And, you know, as for example, with the Lord Bridge treatment in fact tame itself. Uh, so, I mean, for that reason, by and large, legal scholars tend to reason in terms of the language of legal authority and legal precedent, albeit somewhat artificially, but you know, uniquely I think most of us would recognize that the reality of it is a political issue. And of course, you know, there are scenarios where you can say, well, hang on a moment, okay, fine, a court reasoned in a certain way, legally. Surely that is cover for 
what was really going on politically. And, you know, that's a fairly favored technique in some, you know, some areas of legal scholarship. Uh, and I think, you know, one could quite easily apply that type of analysis to both the Court of Justice and the Court of Human Rights. And we say that, you know, the Court of Human Rights margin of appreciation doctrine is a very good example of this. You know, the notion that where there is a sufficient consensus, it will feel able to act, but it won't if there isn't a consensus. I mean, that, that, that you know, that's very, very capable of interpretation in, in explicitly political terms. Uh, but, you know, again, I mean, that, you know, there, there is a body of scholarship that is emerging on the location of sovereignty within the EU uh, and how that relates to national-level sovereignty. I mean, you know, the work of people like Neil Walker or Neil McCormick is, you know, sort of very good examples of this. Uh, so, yes, you know, there's certainly room for that type of analysis here. Yeah, I'm sure you got a... Did you have a question? Uh, uh, in the uh, version of the EU Constitution, mm. the yes. Yes, yes. No, it was fudged. Uh, it, was, it, it was fudged, I mean, for the reason that it was so sensitive, I suppose. Uh, I mean, the European Union was given legal personality for the first time, uh, and that, which caused some people to argue that that would give the, the, the overriding authority of EU law a greater force, if you like. Um, and, of course, by being given legal personality, it could well be that it would actually then have the authority to sign up to the European Convention. But none of this was explicitly spelled out. Uh, I mean, similarly, I think the you know, one argument on the part of opponents of the Constitution was by having a document that is formally called a Constitution, that, again, is going to give late greater formal standing to the EU, so, again, may give it greater ability to sort out problems of this type in a way which favors its own overriding power. But it, it, you know, it's one of the very curious things of the, the Constitution, really. It, uh, it, it rather... Yes, shied away from these <laughs> deliberately difficult questions. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Did, did, did. Yeah, you want to, uh, just to follow up on mm. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. I mean, this ties up very much to the issue, again, of political authority. Uh, I mean, I suppose the, the answer to this would be to say, well, if you conceive of the polity as being a Europe-wide polity now, then, therefore, what a national-level parliament can or can't do isn't all that important. But, obviously, that's an extremely contentious view in Western Europe. I mean, in, in much the same way as, uh, you know, state sovereignty versus federal sovereignty is a contentious argument in parts of the United States. Uh, so, yes, I mean, it does go to a very, very fundamental level of how do we actually understand... Yes, the issue in the location of democracy. And I, I suppose the conflict here also would be between those people who would say, look, the, well, the EC as it originally was, the European Union as it now is, was, was mainly set up as being an economic free trade organization. It's not something which would reach into every area of national life. Uh, and therefore, we have to understand democracy as being located at national level. And therefore, there is a real concern with overly ambitious rules created at European level. Whereas the alternative view, of course, would be to say, well, hang on a moment. Actually, the economic integration part of the package was but a, a first step on the path to, you know, ever closer union, as the phrase goes, um, which would involve a broader conception of a you know, cross-European democracy, uh, in which case, you know, really what people should be doing is involving themselves in the democratic structures at European level, uh, rather than focusing all their attention on national level. Uh, although, of course, you know, by and large, politics tends to occur very much on a national level still in Western Europe. So, yes, I mean, it must involve a clash between those two very different views of where the project is going. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on a question that ranges far beyond this topic. Uh, that is, a, um, a House of Local Authorities has emerged mm -hmm. in the European Parliament. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, yeah, a very good question, obviously, which has been posed recently in, in a number of places. Uh, what, I mean, if you like to complete the picture of the multi-day constitution beyond the part of it that I presented earlier on, uh, I mean, very obviously, the, the other dimension, not only in the UK, but in many Western European jurisdictions, is 
the the exercise of power at local level. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but in, you know, the further dimension is the exercise of power at local level. So in the UK, of course, we have parliaments in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Most European countries are federally structured. So a further issue would be how you actually understand the power of local legislatures or local ex executive bodies or even local consultative bodies, as with some of these regional institutions. That are um, reaching beyond the state. That's right, yes, yes, yes. In fact, I mean, a, a further nice issue here would be questions to do with national independence movements. Uh, I mean, to refer back to the work, say, of McCormick, uh, there are plainly certain regions or states, depending how you define them, which are at the moment parts of other European countries. I mean, e.g. Scotland within the UK, um, or I suppose the Basque region in Spain would be another example, which de you know, in which many people, um, for good or ill, sort of have aspirations towards greater autonomy. Um, and one of the arguments, certainly, that's been used in the Scottish example is to say, well, hang on a moment. Since we are all part of the European Union, uh, and the European Union is a structure that consists of regions and member states and so forth, um, surely it makes little real difference if you turn, let's say, Britain as one member state, in fact, into England, Wales, and Northern Ireland as one member state, and Scotland as a different member state, because we're still going to be subject to the same European Union rules, still part of the same overall structure. There will still be free movement between us, whether of people or of goods. And so in that sense, it doesn't particularly matter anymore whether you, you know, how elaborately you think of things in terms of these different layers. Actually, you could equate areas that are currently regions with nations, um, and it should make little difference from the, the standpoint of the overall sort of European norm. Um, so yes, and I think this is, you know, this is very much an expanding and perhaps ever more relevant area. Well, I want to thank you because this has been a very interesting talk. It's uh, not all that often that we get uh, legal scholars at the center. We're hopeful that we'll be able to continue this for the next couple of years, and I think it's really interesting for us to actually get, a, at least for me, to think in a slightly different way uh, than I'm usually trying to think. So thank you very well, much. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a, thank you. Thank you.